I wonder if you've had this experience. I've had this experience a number of times in my life where I've been at a conference or something and I'm talking with somebody. You're meeting someone for the first time. You've got your name badge on and you're talking with them and you're, they're like, hey, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? And you start to tell them about yourself. And then, they, then they, their eyes drift over your shoulder and they're no longer looking at you anymore. And then it seems like they've seen someone that they'd rather talk to more than you. Um, and, and, and then they, you know, the, the conversation ends up wrapping up relatively quickly and then they leave to go on to, to talk to somebody else. Um, we've all had, uh, that experience probably if you've been in that kind of environment. And a lot of times those experiences have something to do with someone who seems more important in the moment. They make a snap judgment. They're like, yeah, nice to meet you. But that person over there, I think they're maybe a little more important than you. And I'd like to go talk to them. And it's, it's one, of these, one of these subtle little social interactions in these things that, that happen in our lives. But I was thinking about this, this moment as we're talking about this, the, the rival gods that our culture worships, money, sex, and power. And today we're talking about this last one, power. And, and sometimes that's what's going on in that conversation. Someone sees something, maybe, someone that has maybe a little more power than you do, uh, a little more influence, a little more authority. They seem more important in some way. And, and that's... What, what's happening in those kind of dynamics, or someone at least makes that assumption about you. And as I was thinking about this, this last of the, we, we call this the world's trinity, money, sex, and power. Power is the one that seems most abstract, I think. Um, when we're talking about human power specifically, and we'll definitely be talking about God's power as well during the course of our, the message today, but th- this one seems weird and probably the one that you can identify with the least. Like we, we get the first two. Yeah, we have some ideas about what money and sex are, but when we think about power, that one's a little bit more abstract. And so I'll take some time to define that in just a few moments. But we, this desire that I've had to talk through these ideas, money, sex, and power, these kind of big themes of what our culture, uh, I've been saying, worships. We said that this is the world's trinity. These are the, the gods that our culture worships. And it would be a lot easier to identify them as gods if we had all of the trappings and, and, and things that go with a religious practice, like if there was a temple set up to money, when, when we'd go, oh, okay, I can see that our culture worships money. There aren't those things in obvious ways. They're more subtle. They're more sneaky in the ways that our culture worships these three things. Um, But we need to be people. We've been saying over and over again, we have this worshiping instinct, and we need to give that worship to the true God alone and not to these lesser rival gods that our culture holds up as the ultimate thing for us to worship. So each week we've taken one of these concepts. We had an intro week and then we talked um, two weeks ago about money, last week about sex. This week we're talking about power. And again, this one seems maybe more abstract. So what is power? Now for the engineers in the room, I need, I need to say, we've been talking about you this morning already, but I know that there's an equation right for power. Power is work divided by time or energy over time. So that's just I know that that one's, because that might have popped in your head when I said, what is power? You're thinking of a math equation. But power is, our definition that we're using is, it is your ability to get things done that you want to see done. It is your um, ability to make things happen in this world or in your circle, in your social circle, in your workplace, whatever it might be, to use this intangible thing you have to accomplish the things that you would like to see done. It's the influence that you have over others. And we accumulate this human power 
in different ways. It comes from, you know, if you're a parent, you have power in your home over children. You can make things happen that you want to see happen uh, with, your, with your kids, for example. If you're an older sibling and you're still in, living in the home with your parents, you have some kind of power over the younger siblings, Right? If you oversee volunteers or something like that, if you're serving in a ministry or you're in the workplace and you've got people that report to you at some level, you have some power. And we accumulate power through, through these kind of relational things or the positions that you're in. Um, in, a, in a real obvious way, we can think of power as even physical strength. That's an example of power. You could literally overpower someone to be very strong or something like that. That'd be an example of power. Our culture, we, we, we view people who are highly educated as having a certain level of power. Education is something valued in our culture. We say knowledge is power, right? And, and that we mean that in a, in a sort of literal way, that if you have this knowledge, you, you have some power to make things happen or to do certain things. Power can be accumulated by physical attractiveness. People that are just physically attractive might have influence over people around them simply because of the way they look. Expertise is a way that we accumulate power. Someone who has this, this knowledge or skill set, they're the best in the city at this particular thing that gives them some level of power. Uh, we, we obviously know about celebrity and just the, the way that our culture acknowledges celebrities as people that have, I, I said the first week of the series that if you drew a Venn diagram of money, sex, and power, the circles overlapping, that right in the middle where they all overlapped, you could put the word celebrity, that they're the people who kind of embody this the most. We have this term that we use in our modern times, um, someone can be an influencer. Isn't that kind of a weird term and a weird idea? But it means that someone has maybe a social media following that has enabled them to speak to a large number of people. A lot of people want to know what they have to say about something, and they can influence people's ideas, people's perceptions, the things that they think about, the things that they value, the purchasing decisions that they make. That's what an influencer is. That's a certain kind of power. Obviously, politics is something that our culture is very aware of when it comes to power. And, and the way our political system works is this kind of grabbing for power and like the only way to get anything done is if you have the certain the amount of power that you need to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and, and, and all of these sorts of things. So that's an obvious example of power as well. We don't often think of ourselves, probably the average person in this room, don't think of yourself in terms of the power that you have. But to be an American on the global, you know, if you think about the entire world, you have some power being an average American citizen. To have an American passport, do you know that's one of the most powerful passports in the world? That you can get into something like 186 countries with an American passport. There are some that are more powerful, like a Japanese passport apparently is very powerful. You can get into 186 countries without a visa. You can just show up at those countries and they'll, they'll let you in with your American passport. If you had a Somali passport, the number of countries you could go to would be a lot less than having an American passport or an Afghani or Pakistan passport, for example. So here's some kind of examples, ways that we accumulate power. And I want to illustrate this a little bit for you about how power works, human power works in our interactions. 
Um, when I was in the Navy, we had uh, the captain of the aircraft carrier that I was stationed on came and spoke to our division. All the guys that I worked with, guys and ladies that I worked with um, in the engine room on the, on the ship, um, we came and filled up these folding chairs in the hangar bay of this aircraft carrier, and the captain came and spoke to us. He had his you know, rank up there, important person, and he was giving us a speech, and I don't even remember what the speech was about, but the one memory I have that stands out is that he had a few jokes in his speech, and they were just okay jokes, uh, but we laughed like he was Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, it was just like, ha, 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 that's the funniest thing I ever heard, and then later, I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were talking about just, like, that joke was kind of funny, but we all laughed, like, big laughs when he said that funny thing. And what's that all about? Well, he's the captain. He, he's, he's got the, the bird on his, you know, his lapel, and he's, he's the, the captain of the ship. He's a captain on an aircraft carrier in the world's most powerful navy. He's got some power, like literally very powerful person. And that dynamic made his jokes extra funny, right? Um, I remember when I first became the lead pastor of this church a little over 13 years ago, and I, I sent an email to somebody, and I, I was not careful enough with how I'd worded this email, and it came across very hurtful to the person that received the email. And I, I was saying something that was kind of hard, hard to hear, maybe it was a difficult communication thing that I was trying to discuss, but it came across in a very hurtful way, and I wounded the person that I sent this email to. And I remember reflecting on that experience and going like, that was weird. Like I, I didn't send any emails differently than I would have just a few weeks ago when I was an associate pastor. It wasn't like I said something that was particularly hurtful, but it was the position that I was in now as the lead pastor of the church as opposed to being an associate pastor. And my, my words weighed a little bit more as the lead pastor than they did when I was the associate pastor. And I learned a valuable lesson that day that I need to be careful about how I wield this authority that I've been granted, been given. And, and this was another example for me of like, oh, there's, I have power that I didn't realize I had to hurt someone's feelings or to maybe encourage them just purely based on the role that I was in. I've also seen kind of power play out in interesting ways when I've met teenagers before. In the, in the past, and I was thinking about as being a 40-something-year-old man, uh, meeting a, maybe a group of teenagers at some social gathering, show up to something, and it's like, hey, this is, this is our pastor, and then there's a group of teenagers with just kind of like a blank look on their face. They almost don't even see me. I'm like part of the background of, the, of wherever I'm standing, and, and I was, <laughs> it, or, or you're walking through the mall or something like that past a group of teenagers, and you are literally invisible when you're me. Like, it's like, that to them, they do not see you. They're just like, they, they do not care. And it's all about this, because I'm out of their circle. Like, there, there's, I don't know if you've been to, like, if you remember high school days. I know we got a whole lot of homeschool folks and stuff here. But when I was in high school, the power dynamics of a high school, that's pretty, that's pretty wild. Like the whole social structure and all the different groups and the different groups of the popular people and all the different groups and the roles that people play within those groups. There's some interesting power dynamics in the teenage world that are unique to the teenage world. And if you're out of that, you're just not even, does it matter? Power is something that God um, gives people to steward. All power that we have to accomplish the things that we're trying to accomplish, to do the things that we want to do, 
the, those are the, any power that we have or accumulate is, a, is given by God to be managed. Each of these things we've talked about, money, sex, and power, are good creations that our culture distorts and Satan tries to hold up as the ultimate thing for us. And so often people, in a pursuit of power, accumulating power, accumulating uh, influence, these kinds of things, use these in a negative way. We've all heard the term that power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. This corrupting influence that power has, and we, we definitely see this in the political realm, and we see this in a lot of these big corporations and stories that hit our newspapers regularly about how people who use their power for their own gain or to hurt other people. Power is meant to be stewarded. It's actually a good thing meant to be managed for the good of others and all power is in subjection to our all-powerful God, right? God is the one who has the most power. We say that he is all-powerful. And so we don't want to see a a search for power. Often it becomes a search for significance for people. It becomes a search for gain financially. It becomes a search for pride maybe. But all power is meant to be stewarded. It's meant to be used for the benefit um, of others. We're gonna, to illustrate this today and to talk more about this idea, we're gonna look at uh, a story in John chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and get there or scroll there, turn there, whatever the case may be. And this is a story from the life of Jesus. This is the night that Jesus is betrayed. The Last Supper, this is the time that they gather, and the Gospel of John devotes a significant portion of of the book of John to this night that the disciples gather together with Jesus. So we're going to be in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am now doing, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The scene here is dinner time. And 
it, it is this, this moment here. They're not, they don't have a host that would provide the services there. They just have a room. And they've got the Passover meal ready. But during the ancient times, you, you're, you're walking from town to town. There's a lot of walking and no closed-toed shoes. Right? And so you're, you're accumulating on these dirt roads and, and all these things, all the grime and all of that. And then the meals that you would eat are, are ate at a low, eaten at a low table. And you're reclining on pillows or on like a low bench kind of thing. And so your, your feet would be a little close to the food um, most times. And this was a problem, right? And so what you would do is before, you, before you'd have a meal, part of your basic hygiene would be to have someone wash your feet. So if you don't have gross feet, buy the food. Now, if there was an ancient version of Mike Rose show Dirty Jobs, foot Foot washing would be on there like, hey, today we're washing feet with micro, you know. Um, this was a, an unpleasant task. And it was because it was unpleasant, it was done by the lowest status person or by a slave, any one who was the lowest status. So sometimes you would, you would find yourself in situations like these disciples did where it's just a whole bunch of people and they have to decide amongst themselves who is the lowest status person in this room and it is their job to wash their feet. And if you remember the story of the disciples with Jesus, they, there was always a jockeying for position amongst the disciples. They were all about who was the most important, who would have the highest level of authority once his kingdom was established, and they were not about to admit who the lowest status person was in that group. So it seems that Jesus has kind of taken this in for a little bit, seeing the heads go back and forth, and no one's going to do this. And he gets up and he takes off his outer garment. He ties a towel around his waist and he starts washing their feet. And this is scandalous in this culture. This culture is all about power. It's, it's even more visible in their culture than it would have been in our time that this is all about accumulating as much power for yourself and as much status. This is an honor-shame culture where to be seated in a certain way, everything had some kind of social statement, everything had some kind of significance. And the scripture opens up with this incredible thing about Jesus, this amazing statement about him, and it says in verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he began to wash their feet. What this passage is saying about Jesus is he is fully aware of his power, of his authority. God had given all things into his hands. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's about to do. He's, in other words, he's the most powerful person in any room ever. Jesus has all the power. And what does he do with that power? He takes the cloak off, he puts on a towel around his waist, and he takes the posture of a slave. And he kneels in front of these disciples and begins to wash their feet. Over a lifetime of, of meals, these disciples had seen this posture over and over again of someone kneeling in front of them, washing their feet, but now it's Jesus doing it. And Peter cannot handle it. It does not compute. Like He's like, you will not do that. You might do that for them, but I'm not going to allow you to reverse roles in this way. I cannot handle it. He, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. 
Well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. Okay, not just my feet, my, ha- my head, my hands, all of, you know, all of it, you know. How quick he turns on a dime. All right. Then, and this must have taken some time <laughs> to wash the feet of 12 people. Maybe there's changing out of the water and getting some clean water, or getting a, a new towel, but he kneels in front of each disciple and washes their feet, including Judas, who's about to betray him. And he knows. He's like, if you're clean, you've taken a bath. Not all, not all of you are clean, though, because he's, he's making a comment about Judas. And I, I know that I've, I've said this in sermons before, but if I was washing Judas's feet, I would have been a little extra scrubby, you know, a little extra hard, you know, on there, like, come here, Judas, you know, slapping his feet when I'm cleaning them. Jesus doesn't seem to be doing that, right? It's, he, he, he's so uh, compassionate, loving, serves them, meets a practical need, but it's more than just meeting this practical need. He's giving them this big example. He's like, you need to see this. You need to experience this over and over and over again through Jesus' ministry. The disciples have not been getting this point. We went through a series right before this one where we were talking about these predictions of Jesus' death. And there's three different major predictions um, where Jesus predicts that he's, he's going to the cross. And he's telling the disciples. And the Gospel of Mark, when it tells these stories of these predictions, it always puts the disciples arguing over their position and their influence, their authority in the, in the rank of disciples after these predictions. It's like prediction of Jesus' death, disciples argue over who's most important. Prediction of Jesus' death, and it just continues like that. And they've not been getting it. And so Jesus gives them this final, well, not really final, but almost final illustration of what this looks like, and he'll give them the ultimate illustration on the cross of what it means to serve If they would have been watching, though, closely, the way Jesus handled human power, they, they would have gotten this lesson a lot earlier, right? This shouldn't have been shocking to them. Jesus' whole ministry, he rejected this human power that people were constantly trying to give him. You think about the way Jesus, even starting with the temptation of Christ, which we talked about in the first week of this series, the devil's holding out all the human power. You could be the most important person in the whole world, all the kingdoms, I'll lay them at your feet as long as you worship me. And he just continues over and over again with these kind of human ways of being powerful. If you throw yourself off the temple, then everyone will see how important you are. You'll have an immediate following and, and all of this. And he's like, he, get away from me, Satan. And he quotes scripture at him. He's rejecting all of this. And then turning the crowds away. Remember, Jesus has this giant crowd of people. And he knows that there's some real mixed motives in this crowd of people. Some people are here for a meal. Some people are realizing who he really is. And he, he's shocks this crowd into departing where basically everyone leaves except for his disciples. He over and over again is turning away these opportunities that he has to just accumulate human power and human influence. Why does Jesus do this? I, I think one thing is that he sees how, that, that how unnecessary this is actually to his mission, that he's about serving the father and what the father wants him to do. And all, all of it is about, what does God want me to do? What's the Father want me to do right now? I'm going to do that. And, and also, Jesus has all the power, like the real power. He lays aside, you know, some of, his, some of that for in, the, in the course of his ministry, but he's still all this 
miracles and, and serving people around him. And think about how pathetic our human power looked to Jesus compared to divine power. It's a puny little like, oh, you're, you know, so popular. You got a big crowd following you. But he's the, the creator speaking the universe into existence and all of these things. It's like, what, what, who, who even would bother with human power? You see Jesus in his conversation with Pilate, and that's all about power too. Pilate's like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power to release you and all of this? He's like, you, don't, you wouldn't have any power unless God gave you some power to manage. And, you know, over and over again during Jesus' ministry, he's, he's turning away human power in subjection to divine power and what God, what God is calling him to do and for the purpose of his ministry and any power he has, he uses to serve other people. He's not using it to benefit himself. We see this, the opposite of this so much when it comes to power in our culture. Um, Jesus says in this teaching after, after he gets up and puts his cloak back on, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And he doesn't say, and I, I'm not, you're incorrect about that. I'm just a humble, no, he says, I am the teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's calling his, his followers, his disciples, to use their influence, to use their power to serve others, not to accumulate riches and pride for themselves or to make themselves feel really good. And in our culture, we, we, how refreshing would it be if we saw this kind of servant leadership practiced more in our world? You know, we hear the stories constantly about leaders who use people up and just kind of throw them away or the scandal of a CEO that just wrecks his company, sends all the jobs off to another country and ends up with a huge you know, bonus package because the stock price went up when he did all this stuff, but people were hurt in the process. Or we think about the countries around the world that are these developing countries that have tons of natural resources. They should have plenty of provision, but people are starving in the culture, and it's largely because of just corruption at the top that people who have gained a level of power and influence use it to benefit themselves only. And they'll buy houses in foreign countries or investments or they'll store up lots of riches. Meanwhile, their fellow citizens are, are starving. This is an obvious question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Who would you rather follow? The one who uses power for the benefit of others and to bless and to serve people or the one who uses it all to accomplish their own aims and their own things? Right? Obviously, we want to follow that servant leader. Um, one of the scholars uh, that I read in, in, um, on this passage says this, Jesus used power in its most powerful way by using it for the benefit of others rather than using it to benefit himself. He deployed power in the most powerful way you can, which is to bless other people, to impact the other, other people's lives in, in the most powerful way. And Jesus, the ultimate example of this, is him on the cross. He lays his life down for, his, for, for, any, for us, for anyone who would come to him. And this creative power, all the power that would bring healing and life to people, he, he lays his own life down and then through that humble act of service gives life 
He uses his power to bless and to serve the world, any who would come to him. So we've been saying that this idea that power is to be used in subjection of God's ultimate power. God's the one who has all the power. Any power we have, we use in subjection to him. And I want to talk about two words that are important to us when we're thinking about our our own lives and thinking about power um, and what to do with it and how to manage it, how to think about it. And the first word is this, service. This is what Jesus did. He says, "I, I served you. You know who I am. I have all the authority and and respect of all these people and things like that, but I'm serving you and I'm giving you an example. And we need to think about this idea of service when it comes to using our power. And I would say, especially if 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 you feel particularly powerful, if you are in a position of great influence or you have a lot of authority in some way, humble service is super important to help you think about yourself in the right way. And even, even symbolic acts of service Serving, serving your family or serving the needy or serving the vulnerable people or, 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 or making a difference in the, in the life of somebody in some, in some tangible way. To serve in humble ways is an antidote for the kind of thinking about using the power just to benefit yourself. But we, we use service uh, or we need to be people who serve. Jesus gave us this model and this is a fundamental part of using power in a healthy way. Generosity is another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with service because our resources, our finances, they, they, they really represent our power in some ways, right? It, your, your money represents your power to get things done, your power to do what you're trying to do, your, the things that you value you can put your money into, and that represents you making things happen in this world. That's what our money does. And so to give it, to be generous with that is also, I think, a, a way that we use our power, we steward our power the final uh, idea here, the, the, this, this word that's very important in terms when we're thinking of power is the word gentleness. Gentleness. And there's the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, this list of attributes about what the Spirit does in our life. I want to read you that, that, those verses. Galatians chapter 5. If I can find it. I should have got there before. I got a Bible song going through my head, trying to find my way into the Galatians and Ephesians. Okay, there it is. Found it. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's this list of fruits of the Spirit. This is what God's Spirit produces in, in his followers. This is when God's Spirit is involved and at work in our lives, these things are produced. And out of that list of attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, um, the word gentleness might be the least appealing, maybe. Um, because on its surface, it sounds... It, it doesn't sound that great. It's like, what is gentleness? And, and some translations say meekness, which maybe makes it even worse because it's like it rhymes with weakness, right? And in a world that where we value power, in a world where we, where like your ability to get things done is something that's, that's very valued, it doesn't really seem like a virtue that we might want to have, right? It's until we begin to really understand what this word means because it's actually not possible to be weak and gentle, it, it's when we talk about like, uh, you know, you've seen 
Uh, there was an elephant that was doing paintings at one point, I don't know, a few years ago, I remember seeing that. And this, an, like an elephant doing a painting with a little paintbrush and dipping into paint and then painting something on a, on a canvas, that's the elephant being gentle, isn't it? That elephant can just walk through anything, knock trees down, it's, it's got all this power, but it's being gentle and delicate with this paintbrush. Gentleness requires strength, like a squirrel. We don't really talk about like a squirrel being gentle. It's so gentle. It's like, no, it just doesn't have a lot of strength, and that's, it's, it's doing what squirrels do. It, but an elephant w- would be gentle if it's using its strength in a controlled kind of way. It's power under control. And I think the, even the, the idea, if you can relate in any way to gentleness not sounding very appealing, I think that's our culture's relationship with power. It's not something we, we maybe aspire to, but I think it should be. I was thinking about uh, maybe two college football players talking to each other after a game and talking about like what they admired about how the other person did during the game. And I, I, I can't imagine a scenario where they, one football player says to the other one, like, you know what I, what I really admire about how you played that game? How gentle you were. <laughs> like, you, you cradled that football like it was a little baby, you know, just held it so delicately. No, that, that what, what they will talk about is like, that guy tried to tackle you and you ran through him like he wasn't there, like you just overpowered that guy that was trying to take you down. But the reason, I think, why we need to be told that gentleness is a character trait that we need and a virtue that Christ works into our life is because we live in this world where power and strength are used to hurt people. It's used to bulldoze over people. It's used to overpower people. And, and so our idea here is that we need to be people who use any power that we might have, any power that God has given you to steward in a way that serves and blesses and loves other people. So I want you to think for just a few moments about your own power. What what power do you have in your life? And you may not feel like it's very much. Or you might feel like you have a, a significant level of influence. But what are you doing to steward that power, not just for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of other people? I was talking about those high school dynamics, you know, being a teenager and just the, 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 what a unique social environment that is in a school and all of those different things. And I remember when I, I moved the middle of my freshman year from England to Florida to a school that was like eight times as big as the school I'd went to before, showed up the middle of my freshman year and I was just thrust into the dynamics of a American high school. And it was overwhelming. And I remember feeling like, I don't know where I fit in here. There was like two groups back at the school, there was like the people who played basketball or the people who played sports and the people who didn't and I was in the sport group and now the, the teams are a lot bigger here and it's harder to get on the teams and it's a lot more competitive and there's so many different social groups and I don't know how to navigate this and try to figure this out. And I learned from that whole experience just to be someone who uh, uses any power I have, even social power, even relational power that we have to broaden the circle for people. And so I'll often be in situations where I see someone new to the church and I want to welcome people into my circle, to, to welcome them in, to, to use the, the relation, relational power I might have developed to invite people, to encourage them, to, to join, to be a part of the circle, to, don't feel, do, to not feel excluded, but to feel included. And that's a power thing as well. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. I want to read it again as we're concluding our time in this series. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think this, what, what these three rival gods appeal to, money, sex, and power, are these desires that Jesus, or the, the, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 say, these things have been crucified. These things died on the cross with Jesus, and now we are characterized in a different way. Now we are living our lives in a, in a, in a way where we praise and worship the true king only. We don't bow the knees to our knee to any rival gods. We, we give God our ultimate allegiance. There's a picture that J.D. Greer used, a kind of idea of, of this as followers of Christ, that we are this counterculture, countercultural group. We are people that are not defined by our world's values. We are defined by our worship of the king. And we serve him and our morality and our value system are shaped by him and in subjection to him. And what God says is the most important will be the most important to us, not what the world says is the most important. J.D. Greer used the example of a marching band and you got this big group of people out there on a football field and they're all marching in, in patterns and in a certain way marching in unison. And then there's one person in the marching band that's got earbuds in and is not following what the rest of the marching band is. And they're listening to different music and they're not following. Well, that, in, in this illustration's case, that person's probably gonna be unwelcome to the marching band. But I like that image of us as followers of Christ, this whole group, the power to conform out there. It's like, you do what we're telling you to do. You think what's the most important is what we say is the most important. And there's this shaping influence that our culture has on us to worship rival gods. But we wanna worship the true God. Henry David Thoreau talked about marching to the beat of a different drummer. And that's us. We, we march to the beat of uh, of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not by what the world tells us to value the most. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your time, this time, Lord, with you and, and considering these ideas. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us when it comes to these, maybe these more abstract concepts like power, Lord, to think about this in a way that honors you, in a way that um, where give us some direct application we can take from this. As we think about um, the way that we steward the influence, authority, any kind of power that we may have accumulated. Help us to steward that well. Help us to use that to serve other people. Lord, you modeled for us what that looks like. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not be consumed with, with any of these rival gods, to, to use them to worship you and to not worship them directly. We thank you so much for this time in, the, in this series as we've been considering these big ideas or these big concepts and I pray that you would help us, Lord, ultimately to, to worship you alone. We love you. We thank you so much for this time together. We want to be people who are um, more concerned about the power of God and less concerned about our own power. So Lord, help us to serve you well and help us to worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>